Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Charlie Matz, filling in for Ben Blakey. It's Saturday, August 21st, 2021. I've always been someone who likes to control things, and only by God's grace have I learned to let things go. I'm sure you can relate. But when I was 14, my mom was able to build a home for her and my brother and I to live in. One of my favorite things to do was stop by the building site to see the progress of the build. The only problem was that I didn't have the building plans in front of me, and I didn't really know how to build a house, so it was nerve-wracking at times. I felt like it was all going too slow, and I never knew what they were going to do next. How is this ever going to get done, I would think? and sometimes say out loud, my poor mom. The truth is, I didn't trust the contractor who was building our house. You see, he knew the building plan and the timeline and the budget and everything else associated with the build. And you know what? He wasn't freaking out. It's hard to completely trust others when they are stewarding over important matters of our life. And what's more important than our life itself? God has every detail of our life in his hands. And sometimes, if we're honest, we freak out a little bit because he doesn't lean over and share the building plans with us. But unlike the building contractor who was building our new home back in 1994, God doesn't make mistakes. And not only that, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. That struggle to trust the Lord and his sovereign hand is on display today in the book of Job. Today we're in chapters 4 through 7. Now we start reading the responses of Job's friends today, starting with Eliphaz. Here's the bottom line of what we need to know. His friends think that Job's sinful behavior or subpar character has brought on the suffering. These friends can't imagine a man being upright or pure before the Lord. Unfortunately, these friends have two things not going for them. First, They don't have the insight we do. They didn't get to hear God say in chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Second, they seem to believe that all suffering is caused by sin, a common false belief among Christians even today. Here's a few excerpts from Eliphaz's first monologue. First, in 4.17, Can moral man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And then second in 517, he says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. He's basically saying here that Job is being disciplined. Eliphaz is doing the equivalent of you or I going to someone's home who has just had a tragedy in their life, sitting down to supposedly comfort them and telling them that their tragedy is a result of sin and that God is disciplining them. Not exactly a great way to mourn with those who mourn. Job was already having a hard time in deep despair from suffering, but now his friends are making it unbearable, so he responds in chapter 6 by wishing his life would be cut off. He would rather have his life be cut off than to sin against the Lord in response to his suffering. In chapters 6 and 7, Job goes back and forth between talking to himself, about his friends, to himself, to Eliphaz, but then in chapter 7, verse 11 and 12, Job shifts to talk directly to God. A main theme in Job's words to God is that God's presence or watchful eye are too much for Job to bear. He's being crushed by the weight of God. He asks God in chapter 7 verse 12, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set guard over me? 
Job feels that his suffering isn't in proportion to who he is as a created being. Both Job and Job's friends don't know all of what God is doing in this moment. They're attempting to make sense of the world they find themselves in by filling in the gaps with whatever theology they do have and based on the experiences in their own life. This is a good lesson for us today. We must be careful to not fill in the gaps about God when we don't have all the information. And we need to be careful to shape our view of God by the word of God and not by our emotions or popular theology of the day. If we are the one suffering, it's important to remember that we don't always know everything that God is doing. Like we talked about yesterday, we don't know how our specific story ends. But we do know that God will work it all together for our good if we love Christ. If we are the one comforting, a suffering believer, less is more. As we see from the book of Job, there is a lot going on behind the scenes in heaven and on earth that we have no idea about. We should be present to weep with those who weep. We should let our words be few, worshiping God through difficult situations and providing dignity and comfort to our brothers and sisters while they process through tragedy. And we must not be tempted to think that because someone has found themselves struck with tragedy, that is necessarily a direct result of greater sin in their life than ours. And that's the exact scenario that Jesus responds to in our Gospels reading today in Luke 13, 1-9. This short passage starts out by referring to an incident where Pilate killed some Galileans who were sacrificing. We don't know much about this incident, and really the finer details seem secondary to the point of the story. Jesus uses this tragedy, experienced by a few, to bring up a common misconception about suffering and sin. It's too bad Job's friends weren't in the audience. Jesus asks, Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Shilom fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The audience was used to a system that measured people by outward appearances, which made it easy to believe that bad things would happen to bad sinners relative to how badly they have sinned. But Jesus levels the playing field here, calling all to repentance. And it's not a coincidence that immediately following, he tells the story of the fig tree getting one last chance to bear fruit. He's warning Israel of coming judgment and that they must repent, put their trust in Jesus Christ, ushering in the new era of the kingdom and start bearing true kingdom fruit. This same warning holds true today. Why has Christ not come back yet? That more would come to repentance that more proverbial fig trees would bear fruit. How much time do you have? How much time do those unbelievers in your life have? We don't know, but it's certainly less than when Jesus gave this warning and certainly less than yesterday. This passage in Luke serves to provide some urgency for us. First, to the response of the gospel. If you haven't responded to Christ's invitation to follow him, today is the day. Second, to the importance of evangelism. Let us take every opportunity given to us by the Lord to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that those who hear it can respond before it's too late. And on that note, if you are saved, if you are a believer, let's praise God that the good news did come to you and I. Let's worship God that he did send his son to die for us, to pay for our sins. And I would imagine that most of you listening to my voice are Gentiles, not Jewish by descent. So we have an even greater reason to praise the Lord that he sent Jesus not just to die for Israel, but for the whole earth. And if you're looking for words to say out of adoration for the Lord in worship of his holy name, then you're in luck because Psalm 100 can deliver. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing, know that the Lord, he is God. 
It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What an incredible thought that this psalm, written with Israel in mind, can now be sung by Christians throughout the world in thankfulness and worship to our King Jesus. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Let's give thanks to him and bless his name. Let's go to church tomorrow with some fire in our lungs to sing up praises to God in light of his faithfulness to all generations. And as we go to church tomorrow, let's be grateful for those brothers and sisters that we can hug, talk to, and encourage in person. As I read our New Testament passage in 1 Thessalonians today, it struck me how difficult it must have been for Paul to not see his beloved friends for such long periods of time. All he could do was write to them and hear back from them. But unlike today, that wasn't even instant. Maybe today's reading in Thessalonians reminds us of just how fortunate we are to have access to our brothers and sisters on a regular basis. Let's not take that for granted, because that hasn't always been the case. And perhaps one day, Someday, we will be separated again by unique circumstances. But today, let's be encouraged by Paul's final words in this letter. First off, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I think this is a perfect passage for me to read and reiterate as Pastor Ben Blakey comes back on the scene next week, both in this podcast and in the pulpit. Be sure to encourage him if you get the opportunity. I am very personally thankful for his leadership, for his faithfulness to teach the Word of God and shepherd this church to safety, comfort, and fruit of the Christian life through the power of the Word of God. Well, Paul continues, and quite honestly, these final instructions and benediction of Paul's, they could easily provide a three-part sermon series as it is chocked full of incredible imperatives of the Christian faith. But I want us to focus only on verse 14, a powerful challenge from Paul that always sounds like a rally cry to me. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I want to leave you today with some questions about these four imperative commands by Paul, so that perhaps tomorrow, when you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ at church, you can find ways to put them into practice. So first, admonish the idol. Is there anyone you know who needs to get in the game, so to speak? Perhaps God has placed someone in your life who needs to start serving in the church, and you're the best person to lovingly, gently, but honestly tell them that. The pastors of your church don't always have the best opportunity to have these delicate yet timely conversations with every single person. It's very possible that you're the perfect person to offer this challenge to a brother or sister. Now, encourage the faint-hearted. Is there someone you know who is terrified of what's happening in our culture. They aren't sleeping at night because of what's happening in Afghanistan, or do they constantly fear the coming persecution that could happen in this country? Can you intentionally come alongside them to encourage them with prayer and the word of God? Take a cue from Job's friends. Less is more. And then help the weak. Are there brothers and sisters in your life who need help? Maybe they need someone to take them through a discipleship program like partners at Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley, or they need someone to hold them accountable to daily Bible reading. The bottom line is this. Don't assume that someone else is helping the weak person in your life. Consider why God has placed you in their life, perhaps for such a time as this. And lastly, be patient with them all. God is ultimately the only one who changes hearts, who grows us in sanctification who convicts us about sin through his word. I encourage you to just be faithful and trust the Lord 
that he will do his work in his timing. And that takes us back to the house that was being built when I was 14. Why didn't I just enjoy the fact that a house, an actual house was being built for my mom, my brother, and me? This was going to be the first time in years that I had my own room. We're going to have a basement and a yard. This should have been a time of celebration. But why didn't I just enjoy it? Because I didn't trust the contractor. And there was no reason not to trust him. He was good at what he did. I just didn't really trust anyone more than I trusted myself. When we learn to trust the Lord, even when he doesn't show us the building plans of our life, we are much more joyful and effective in ministry. I pray that we can all grow to trust him because he is worthy. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. We'll have a couple special guests on Monday and Tuesday, and then Ben Blakey, he'll be back on August 25th. For more resources, check out RevivalFromTheBible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.